Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. This week, the team talks about the coverage of a shooting on live TV and the latest tragic developments in migration in Europe. We preview a Battle of Ideas debate on robots and artificial intelligence with Martin Perks, and Philip Walters discusses the latest school exam results in England and how the schooling system needs to be reformed. And now the news, and to discuss the events of the past week or two, I'm joined again by my colleagues Dave Bowden and Claire Fox. Perhaps the biggest story in the past few days has been the shootings live on TV in America of two journalists by a disgruntled former employee of a TV station. The discussion that's been going around that on all sorts of levels, from gun control to social media. So who's got any thoughts on that? The obvious reaction you have to the way in which the killings were reported was actually sort of one of a degree of shock that kind of went beyond the, the nature of the shootings themselves. I think, first of all, I was actually shocked enough to see people reproducing the images of the the shooting that took place live on TV, which in a way was inescapable and an essential part of the story. That was already hideous enough. And I felt uncomfortable viewing those footages. It was actually only later in the day uh, that I realised that there had then been a, another video done by the shooter himself, of course. That was what they used as the, uh, the lead on the, on the front pages. And I had very much that... Um, sort of sense that you were capturing the act of murder and they perhaps went a lot further than they they needed to do to actually show the moment when the bullet was fired. Um, Now it kind of creates journalistic dilemmas is that obviously the information is out there in the public domain. It is actually an important aspect of the story that the the shooter both committed the act on live TV and recorded it himself and used social media to display it. But I also had queries about whether they really needed to show us all of the gory details of that. For me, that felt quite close to a lot of the unease and disquiet we feel around ISIS's um, acts, where they where they commit these acts of barbarity for international transmission and propaganda purposes, and then we engage with it by become kind of viewers and voyeurs. And so I sort of felt that there was an awful lot of journalistic misjudgment displayed in how the media reported the story. Well, I accidentally, because I haven't followed the story, clicked on and watched it. And I'm squeamish at the best of times. I mean, I'm, so I, I didn't realise it was the, that video. I thought I was watching the TV thing. So I watched it. And I, I wish I hadn't watched it. I mean, it's not gory, but it's just so vivid. And that was because, and it was on a mainstream newspaper uh, that, that I clicked on. I also have qualms about this and I know that one of our colleagues in fact was on the radio and he argued a kind of very robust free speech position you know I actually think that although that's kind of uh, I, I can understand how you could argue that and you don't want to call for the banning of it it did seem to me to be unnecessarily dominating the headlines because in the end this was two people who were shot in America and it's become a kind of world story and it's been on the front page of all of the UK newspapers as though it merited that amount of attention. I think it just didn't. And I think that it probably wouldn't have had that attention had it not been for the films. Then it does seem to me that a very disturbed uh, young man who had that that sort of sense of grievance, which sadly we see all too regularly, but, you know, uh, complaining about all of the ways that had been 
blaming everyone else, saying he's a victim of homophobia and racism. So obviously, I don't know any of the details. Wants to create a new story, and we fulfilled that wish. Whereas he is just a disturbed murderer. So I also felt foolish. But what was interesting about the reaction, because I got asked to do a couple of media pieces on the um, case yesterday, and it was interesting because they were assuming that I would come up with a straightforward free speech defence of this information out there. And I said, well, no, I do object to the media coverage. And they were like, oh, so you think it should be banned? And I had to say, no, I don't think it should be banned. It's out there. But I think that there's also a, a moral line that you can draw between approving of something um, and calling and disapproving of it and calling it for it to be uh, banned in this instance. Because I think the story was a massive story because it happened on live TV. In a way, that aspect was inescapable. And I actually, I do think that the media should be free to report on something which is of as huge interest. I don't think it should be viewed as a consideration about whether it is you know, giving the oxygen of publicity to speak to these acts or that it that it, it um, there's that risk of traumatising others. But I think that there's there's a responsibility, I think, that just comes with understanding where the lines are. What are you actually reporting on? Because I got struck by the amount of people that I heard say along the lines of, well, you see much worse things on the evening news. And I just thought, I can't think of, perhaps with the sole example of the um, Jordanian pilot who was burnt alive by ISIS, the way that was displayed quite heavily by the media. I can't think of anything which is on the level of seeing another human being being murdered from the point of view of the person who is the murderer on the news. The fact that people couldn't differentiate between sometimes seeing the the violent and traumatic fallout from war and conflict and terrible things that happen, the reaction to that as part of a broader context of the story, and the actual act of killing itself, I thought was a little bit surprising. And I think it really kind of revealed that there's a so much kind of discomfort we have talking about kind of moral boundaries, I think, today within broader societies. Actually, that you know, I still think that there's taboos that I'm willing to defend in a in a certain way. I think that probably is quite a healthy taboo for us to have that we shouldn't go around watching people being killed live on TV or live on the internet. Um, so I found it interesting in that sense. I mean, I mean it just contrast somewhat with the way in which the Shoreham air crash was dealt with. So this was. Uh, an old fighter plane being used for a, an aerobatics display which crashed into a major road in southern England, uh, killing lots of people on the road. And the, the, you, obviously, because it was an, an, an air display, there was lots of people filming it, and therefore there's lots of footage of it. But the footage was always stopped just before the plane crashed, and then you saw a bit of the aftermath from a distance afterwards. But they... they, they there was, seemed to be some care taken about not showing the whole thing all the way through. So there seems to be discretion there, but not discretion in relation to this particular case. Um, no, I, but I also think, I think that Dave's explained it very well, but I think it was the, for me, it's the fact that this is the intended view that you'll see by the murderer. So again, whilst we can have all kinds of imagination conjured up for us as a CSI fan that I am, you know, you, you're used to sort of imagining what that would be like. But this is the person doing the act and showing you. And the shocking bit is that he doesn't shoot the girl until the cameraman turns round. So it's the callousness of him waiting to be filmed. You're with him because he's got the film. So there's something about that thing, seeing it through the eyes, which I think you're right. It's not just a violence thing because it would be like... Um, if somebody just, if, you know, the, the, the man who crashed the airplane purposefully 
if he's kind of filmed it all and streamed it. Because you know what I mean, it's not just accidental footage. This was intentional. So that also, and I, I but you're right, Dave, that that it that's what made it shocking. But it is true that people only imagine that you'll call for it to be banned or that it should be viewed. And that seems to me to be an, a, a hopelessly narrow terrain of moral choice making for the media. Uh, t- talking of uh, horrific stories, uh, over, overnight we heard of the deaths of possibly 70 migrants in a lorry in Hungary. They'd been uh, transported uh, across Europe and placed into this uh, sealed lorry without air, and all of them appear to have died. And absolutely horrifying. And in part, what's striking about it is that actually it, it doesn't feel like news in a way, that there's so much of this going on now that we, we're finding more and more people dying in the Mediterranean, um, trying to get to Europe, that there's a danger of almost becoming immune to this tragedy. I mean, what, what can we say about migration now that other than the, the sheer kind of callousness of the, the effect of Fortress Europe? Well, I, I, I've watched a number of very fine... Um pieces of journalism over the last few weeks but that and in some ways that they, they tell the same story which is they travel with migrants for example uh, Lindsay Hilson did a great uh, piece on Channel 4 News uh, traveling with uh, migrants going to Serbia and of course what makes these stories seem different is when you're traveling and you interview the individuals and they've all got absolutely fascinating stories about why they've left their home country, why they're trying to get away, and they're all very different. But it's almost as though that's all you can do, is to humanise people in that way. If you're a journalist, it's very difficult to know what else to do. And there's also something quite samey about it, because obviously, by and large, humans are great people. <laughs> and so you can interview lots of people, and they're all they're all aspirational. They're all So I've enjoyed them, but then I've thought, this is a bit sort of, we're, we're kind of running out of things to say in the way that you've said it's either tragic deaths. But, but it's also interesting this week that there has been this debate about are they migrants or are they refugees? And in fact, we've had this debate in this office because we w- would like to do this discussion for a debating matters topic for the pupils to debate. But it's actually quite tricky because on the one hand, migrant and refugee are interchangeably used. And then on the other hand, people are trying to make this distinction between refugees who are suffering torture, where, where it fits into the international law that says they're allowed to be given refugee status, and migrants who are, you know, we don't know why they're leaving their home, often, but it's not quite as simple as economic migrants anymore, because they're often leaving countries that have been absolutely decimated and devastated, and often by Western intervention, as it happens, but can just be that the countries have failed states. And it makes them, me realise that what a nonsense it is trying to make those distinctions. I mean, you can say that this is the correct term that you should use, but ultimately, my political attitude to this would be that we, we have to say either that we're going to let everybody in, but trying to say to people, how much have you suffered before you got here in order to prove that you're worthy to come in, puts people into a position where they're having to show their scars in order to prove their worth. And I think that's even more demeaning and distasteful um, than than anything else in in some ways. Yeah, and what I think is really interesting about the issue is in the context of the battle of ideas, which we're in the middle of um, really kind of put together the programme for, we do a a series of international events, a lot of debates across Europe that are going on through September through to November. And at the start of the year, we very much obviously assumed that kind of Hebdo and kind of free expression and the kind of challenges of 
you know, European identity um, would be the kind of very much the kind of heart of our kind of strategy for European discussion. But actually, when we've been speaking to more and more European partners, they've been wanting to to discuss migration and immigration much more readily because actually there's a there is a kind of acknowledgement that there is a great problem for Europe at the moment. On the one hand, it has its uh, internal open borders policy. On the other hand, we're seeing some of the real brutality of fortress Europe and the kind of the belief that not even just on the level of a country but on a continent that there cannot be a kind of coherent um, belief that you can cope with people coming en masse to when you think about you know the capability and the economic power of Europe as a whole and that's a big question that people are really trying to work out so in a way it's it's both upsetting to see the level that the discussion has been reduced to in a way but people are there is a kind of greater sort of sense that people want to kick back and challenge some of the narrative on this actually there's been more willingness to debate questions which even go back a few you know this is from the perspective of someone who's been arguing for open borders for for many years a few years ago it it was felt like it was becoming frustrating to discuss the immigration issue because there were so many assumptions made at the outset and it seems to me that those assumptions are weakening a little bit which obviously represents some opportunity obviously some risks from that as well there's also a, a climate where the the future of Europe is, is being discussed, and that means, you know, that there is the possibility of the return of national borders in a certain way. And how do you balance that uh, distinction between having a, a national identity, having borders, having sovereignty, having control over that, and also at the same time an open policy to migrants is a it's a really big and difficult question for us to try and work out. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out at the battle and obviously um, going forward from that. Okay, well, there's so much more we could talk about, but we'll have to leave it there. Dave and Claire, thank you very much. Humans, a drama about the blurring of lines between humans and androids, has become Channel 4's highest-rated drama for over 20 years. In the show, human-like robots are sold as servants, but it quickly becomes apparent that they are not as servile as they first appear. Robots matching or even superseding humans is a recurrent theme in sci-fi, from Isaac Asimov's iRobot and James Cameron's Terminator franchise, through to Alex Garland's 2015 thriller Ex Machina. But in real life, robots are very far from matching humans. In certain limited and repetitive tasks, robots can easily be more accurate and productive. Even in 1979, Fiat could advertise its cars as hand-built by robots. Yet on other simple tasks, such as climbing stairs... Real-life robots are little better than Daleks. So why are we so worried about the robots taking over, and does artificial intelligence offer any prospect of machines becoming as capable as people? To discuss this, I'm joined by Martin Perks, a consultant, writer and speaker on design, innovation and business change, who's producing a debate at this year's Battle of Ideas titled Man vs. Machine, Who Controls the Robots? So Martin, we've seen that sci-fi loves this kind of thing, but what kind of people are expressing these kind of fears in real life it's a mixture of people from scientists innovators to kind of technologists and futurists so people who come to mind are people like elon musk who's a well-known investor of technologies and an innovator in um, car transportation technology and so on people like uh, stephen hawkins uh, the well-known scientist as well as um, bill gates they all have this kind of thing in common which is really about this kind of at one hand, sort of celebrating the idea of the potential of robotics and artificial intelligence, but on the other hand, I've become very sort of fearful about its potential. 
in a sense of whether we as society are able to control it as it develops in the, in the near future. And so, so where, where's that fear coming from, do you think? Well, I think it's a number of places because for the last couple of years, there's been a very big heightened debate about robots. Are they stealing our jobs? But equally, uh, through films like iRobot, uh, Ex Machina, loads and loads of books, um, there seems to be a kind of a more cultural aspect to robots and in particular artificial intelligence. So I think that the kind of the, the more contemporary fears about robots and artificial intelligence are coming from a number of places. So one is um, very recently there's been a sort of a, a, about a thousand scientists and commentators who have just recently kind of written a letter basically arguing that uh, we need to be very careful about artificial intelligence and especially around wars and military conflicts. Um, so they co-authored this letter and presented it to the International Joint Conference on Artificial Intelligence in Buenos Aires um, very recently. And again, people like um, Musk and Gates and even uh, Apple co-founder Wozniak, Steve Wozniak, was amongst the very prominent people signing this letter. Basically looking at the threat of robots in the battlefield. Um, if we kind of can wage wars these days, what happens if we kind of employ a sort of robot or artificial intelligence uh, which will take away kind of human control over weaponry and what could that you know mean in terms of I guess the morality of welfare and uh, you know again about the morality of kind of taking taking lives if we are no longer uh, as human beings kind of in control of those weapons but even in the same year there was another kind of gathering of, of like-minded scientists like Gates again and others um who wrote another letter, <clears throat> they like letters these guys, at a thing uh, called the, the Future of Life Institute um, in January, again arguing that artificial intelligence, they said, is our kind of biggest existential threat. Again, it's like two or three kind of moments this year especially um, where these, these, these sort of um, commentators effectively kind of press the panic button about the potential fear of robots and artificial intelligence. So it seems to have kind of been bubbling up uh, for a number of years, again, in the kind of economic sphere, but it's kind of come to the fore again in a more cultural. And I think it's kind of caused, as I say, around sort of war and sort of military conflict uh, with, for example, the use of drones and, uh, you know, other sort of semi-autonomous sort of weaponry, um, such as, uh, you know, guided missiles, cruise missiles and so on, which are effectively part driven by artificially intelligent <clears throat> guidance systems. But equally... Um, these these people seem to be uh, kind of more so fear about fearing about the future in terms of kind of more significant kind of investment uh, where robotics could play a part. But given what we've just said before, I mean that, that doesn't that doesn't seem a very realistic short to medium term prospect. I mean, blurring the lines between a guidance system, for example, and genuine intelligence, where you know, there, there is the idea of of you know, robots or machines having interests that they recognize of themselves and acting upon them the two seem just miles apart well yeah i i would definitely agree with you there i think that there is certainly we're witnessing um the rise of smarter computing to potentially um as we know uh, things like autonomous uh, cars where you know hopefully very soon many of us will be able to get into a car and type in an address and it will take you there without any need for kind of human intervention which is in one sense a kind of a sign of smart systems, smart computing. But I think it's a, it will take a large leap of faith to go from there to something which is sentient and has a, 
a sort of sense of intelligence like a human being or a sense of consciousness. I think that's a completely different ball game. Because I think if you look at the actual science, we've got such a long way to go when it comes to artificial intelligence. So, for example, there's a very interesting project called the Open Worm Project, where scientists have been mapping um, the neurons of a one millimeter long worm and then taking that that neural network which they've mapped which incidentally is only 320 neurons they've counted so it's very very small and their project has been to kind of map those neurons and stick it into what's called a lego mindstorm robot and that is pretty much the extent of what we've got we've done so far when it comes to try and map our idea of intelligence into something which um, we can then create again in a sort of robotic form so of course if you compare 300 and two neurons to the many trillions we have as humans then we are you know many many thousands of years away you could argue from doing anything close to human intelligence so yeah so that that then leaves you with the sort of underlying discussion which seems to be about a i don't know a philosophical crisis about what it means to be human so on the one hand we have some really fantastic potential for for artificial intelligence machines that can take over some very very specific tasks but in in terms of this this broader sense of what is it to be human what is this thing intelligence they seem to be running away with themselves i mean so so how how do we how should we approach that more philosophical debate well i think for me um it is peculiar and it's what it's also very interesting about this debate about robots and artificial intelligence is that the very attempt that they try to recreate human intelligence they seem to at the same time kind of diminish it of its very unique kind of quality or to try and shall we say break down kind of human consciousness into a matter of neurons and networks to say that that is all it means at least in part to to become a human I think what's interesting to me about this is it's we've seen a lot of this discussion recently anyway when it comes to the sort of animal kingdom as well there's lots of very similar debates about you know are we intelligent as apes for example or other animals um so the debate there is also about trying to the attempt to discover uh the 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 workings of animal animal behavior at the same time we kind of risk of reducing human um, intelligence and uniqueness down to the level of animals which plainly are not our, at our level of consciousness or uh, you know sentient awareness so that's the peculiar thing about this discussion about artificial intelligence because I don't think it's necessarily looking at how we can push the boundaries of what's possible in terms of computing power per se but it, it seems to be the opposite in terms of trying to reduce what's special about human intelligence to the level of a mere computer and that's kind of the, the backward sense of this discussion because surely what we should be doing is, is thinking about robots and artificially intelligent machines as best we can make them in a, in a way that helps augment our lives better. So it makes us, shall we say, even more human, more agile, you know, more um, mobile because we have these machines and robots to help us do things better more quickly. So the, the problem about the debate at the moment about artificial intelligence and robots is that because these scientists and innovators and investors are, are kind of like pressing the panic button, it means they're probably sort of at risk of overly moralising the potential threat, where what happens because of that is that as a society we no longer benefit from any, any more future potential R&D. In effect, they're kind of 
pressing the panic button so we are no longer able to um, uh, reap the rewards of uh, future innovation because they no longer feel they're in control of what that might bring about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it does seem a very uh, strange thing in any event to want to replicate humans when there's like already 7 billion of us and we're pretty good at being humans and actually we're not so good at a lot of the stuff that you know robots are already doing and uh, you know that we could go a lot further with okay so uh, so when is the debate taking place yeah so the debate uh, man versus machine who controls the robots is going to be taking place at the battle of ideas the barbican on sunday the 18th of october between 12 noon and 1 15 so um do come along it's gonna be a great interesting discussion uh, martin perks thank you very much thank you This year's GCSE results were released last week. Overall, the number of pupils who achieved a grade C or above has gone up, but the number of top grades has gone down. But the exams, which are normally taken by pupils when they are 16 at the end of their compulsory school education, are not without controversy. Some have called for them to be scrapped as more and more pupils carry on with education and training until they're 18. In June, John Cridland the head of the employers' organisation, the CBI, called for GCSEs to be scrapped and for a full review of education for 14- to 18-year-olds. Meanwhile, the government is working towards all pupils taking a core set of academic exams at GCSE. Joining me to offer a personal view on the future of our examination system is Philip Walters. Philip has a keen and long-standing interest in education and is on the board of a number of educational publishing, assessment and training businesses. He's also been an associate of the Institute of Ideas for many years and was involved in our debating matters competition for six formers from its earliest days. So, Philip, let's start with the basics. For those listening abroad or for old lags like me who just managed to avoid them, perhaps we could start by explaining how GCSEs came about and how they work at the moment. Well, GCSEs came about... I think in 1987 as a response to what went before which was O-levels and CSEs which were regarded as being um, divisive in that O-levels were for effectively those who were meant to be in the top 20% academically and CSEs were for everybody else. CSE grade 4 was meant to be the 50th, the sort of halfway space um, whether or not you believe in those percentiles you know is another issue but that's what the intention was and strangely um, in the age of Margaret Thatcher this um, nod to equality in the examination system this reform was put through by Kenneth Baker I think who was Secretary of State for Education at the time and the idea was that there would be a single exam in every major subject that would properly reflect what the cohort was capable of and in a way it was a precursor for the introduction of uh, national testing at key stage one two and three which uh, people forget now but was that they were originally introduced as a way of examining whether the cohort the overall cohort was improving or not or whether it wasn't about giving the individual kid a mark a grade a level but with, as it coincided with the whole sort of move into, shall we say, the kind of consumerist nature of uh, school education, quickly that became impossible. You know, the, the parents wanted to know what their, indiv- what their individual kids had done. And that led in turn to they wanted, you know, how was one school do- doing against another school? And the whole creation of school league tables and this, that and the other came out. Classic law of in- 
unintended consequences. Just explain to me the mechanics of it, because aren't there different papers for different groups of kids? Well, um, the, each school can choose from a range of available GCSEs, which are approved by an overarching body, but they essentially choose from three examination boards. Then what happened was that a faux market was created. The ex three exam boards were encouraged to compete with each other. And so they would go into a school and say, I think, you know, be terrific for you if you used um, our suite at GCSE or A-level. And what was their USP? Well, their USP tend to intended to involve the word accessible. And, uh, you know, translating to English, that meant your kids were more likely to do well with our exam because it's probably a bit easier than, than the other one. Now, you know, there's been endless sort of, no, that's not the case, followed by people then subsequently when they leave the exam board saying, yeah, it was the case. We've, we've also had the perhaps rather strange development that a um, FTSE 100 company actually bought one of these exam boards. So Pearson bought Edexcel in 2004 or five. I can't quite remember. And I don't think many people know that. And it, it's a strange thing when you, when, I, when I've mentioned this at various, you know, battle of ideas events and this, that and the other, people go, really? I didn't know that. That's extraordinary. Isn't that extraordinary? But the thing is, there's real money in this. So this market has developed into something worth about four to five hundred million quid. That's not peanuts. That's over twice as much as is spent in total on books, learning materials in the whole school system in the UK. That's that again, it's the kind of thing that when you when you talk to parents about that, they say, What? Well, doesn't the government just handle that? And no, it doesn't. Um basically this comes out of school budgets. And you know, if I was a cynic, which obviously I'm not, you might think that the whole um, encouragement towards retakes that there's been over the last few years had as much to do with getting the the fee, yeah. uh, the extra fee, as, as you know, whatever. Now, I, I think that is a, an over-cynical interpretation. Right. That, the, the retake thing, I mean, it was, it was clearly something that grew but i think it was as much to do with parental and student demand as you know the exam board sort of sitting there like monty burns thinking oh yes fly yeah. my lovelies yeah. <laughs> so looking at gcse uh, uh, sort of historically you know 30 years ago exams at 16 were probably the most important ones for the majority of pupils um, most people would have wouldn't have stayed in education past 16 and even fewer would have gone on to university so so what is the situation now and does having such big exams at 16 really make any sense anymore well i don't think so and look when i went to university 42 years ago in 1973 there were 270,000 young men and women who were undergraduates, undergraduate students in the UK, of which 180,000 were young men and 90,000 were young women. Now there are one and a half million, one and a half million undergraduate students in the UK, of which 900,000 are women and 600,000 are men. This is the most unremarked social change in my lifetime. It's an extraordinary change. And I actually think it's a great change. I think it's a, 
it's a fantastic thing that's happened. It's not without its issues. And, you know, we can get into the university of wherever giving a degree in something that looks silly and the Daily Mail and the Guardian, or whoever it is, can get into a state about that. I actually think this massive opening up of higher education is overall a, a great thing. However, it does have two consequences, I think, particularly in relation to GCSEs. Everybody is now meant to stay in full-time education or training of one kind or another till they're 18. The leaving age from school, college, whatever, is 18. It's not 16 anymore. So basically, you've got 50% of the cohort going into higher education, and you've got 50% of the cohort doing other stuff. Now, GCSEs, two years before this happened, seem to me to be completely irrelevant now. They have... They, they serve no purpose. And there is no other country that I can find in the world except those with some strange kind of British colonial legacy that do, do this. Every other country in the world has some form of school leaving certificate. And we're strangely different. So we've gone down a road of having a sort of relatively speaking vast range of subject coverage at 16 plus and a very very narrow one as being our effectively university entrance exam at 18 plus now i think that there are a few reasons why it would be sensible to significantly reform what what's happening in this uh, at the 16 17 and 18 year old levels first of all there's no reason to do anything at 16 anymore. It is actually meaningless. It, in itself, it has no value. In terms of what it might lead on to, it has no value. You know, there's no life decisions that are dependent on this. There are some contrived ones in the way that, you know, the university entrance system looks at the kinds of grades that you got at GCSE as predictors. But, but even that is, is pretty desperate stuff. And, well, we've had the reform just now, which is being eased in, which is to go back from the ASA2 approach to splitting A-levels that was introduced in 2000, 2001, back to having A-level exams at the end. So of, this, this, was, this was like having a, an exam at the end of your first year of sixth form and yeah. then another one, the big that one. That was AS, and then A2s, which were the other half of the A-level, which gave you the whole thing. And the big increase in, eight, in in retakes came from people who bombed in their ASs, who then retook them. Or, you know, there's a huge amount of time. You look at the coverage recently, with one or two exceptions. Everything um, is about uh, the number of people getting A stars in GCSE has gone down from 6.1% to 6%. I mean, really? Who gives? Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't matter. Um, and so, and yet the coverage year after year after year is about percentage changes and they're bad news either way either they've got worse in which case oh my goodness what's going on or they've got better in which case everybody says the exams are useless and don't actually value anything so you know it's like a no win for for everybody it's wait these exams are a waste of money but i think even more importantly and I would have included ASs in this absolutely as well. They're an enormous waste of time. The two summer terms, when you're 16 and 17, have become utterly 
useless except for revising and taking exams. You learn nothing in those two terms. The teacher engagement you have is about the test you're about to take. It is not about teaching and learning as as anybody would understand it. It is not about doing the kind of cultural and sporting things that you might want to do. It's not about being able to get involved in a debating matters team or, or, you Mm -hmm. know, all of those things that everything is squeezed out for the tyranny of these useless exams. But I think we've got to look at the whole 14 to 18 thing in a completely different way. And where we are at the moment um, in terms of the curriculum is that we've revised the, the primary curriculum quite thoroughly. And I, I think actually quite well. I think the primary curriculum now is a better curriculum than it, than it was. And in some ways, although it involves more knowledge acquisition, which has been a bit of a thing for people, it actually is freer in some ways than it was before. We've still got, although they've been sort of given a slight sort of academic boost, we've still got the old GCSEs and A-levels, even if we haven't got ASS levels anymore. And we've done virtually nothing with the bit in between, which is Key Stage 3. Key Stage 3 has just been sort of, I don't know, utterly neglected as far as I can see. What age is Key Stage 3? Key Stage 3 is 11 to 14. Right. Then I think at, at, at 14... We, we should consider if there's any reason to have, shall we say, assessment or examination before school leaving. I think there's much more argument for that to be at the age of 14 than at the age of 16. And this is tricky because very often people refer to what they understand the situation in Germany, where a big decision is kind of made at 14 between those who as we would describe it, although the Germans wouldn't describe it in this way, go down an academic path and those who go down a vocational path. Now, that distinction in Germany, it doesn't, insofar as I understand it, have the same kind of uh, quality that it has here. But I think that we need to decide at 14 that we're working towards a range of a school leaving certificate a baccalaureate whatever we want to call it that has a wider range than a levels do at the moment and that in the end becomes a more effective entry into either university or apprenticeship or all the world of work the the institute of ideas has, has in in most of the education discussions i've had the central tenet is that education is a good in itself and is justified in itself and that's something that i absolutely agree with and that's a thing that's a perfect note to finish on philip walters thank you very much you're welcome thank you for listening to this edition of the podcast of ideas for more information about our podcasts and to subscribe to them visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast Early bird discounts for the Battle of Ideas are still available until the 9th of September. Visit battleofideas.org.uk for more information. Mm-hmm.